Season 1, Episode 8 of Infinitely Prefer a Book. Today, my friend Lori and I are discussing the book Salt Houses by Kala Alian. Lori and I are currently co-workers. We work together um, in the job that I've been in for the last two years. And we both enjoy reading, and so we often find ourselves talking about books um, when just in our day when we come across each other and we have um, some a little bit of downtime. And so Lori gives me lots of suggestions. And so Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Catherine. I've been looking forward to doing this. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. a little nervous about it too, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> understandable, understandable. The first time is always a little bit nerve wracking, but I'm really glad that you agreed to come on with me. So tell our listeners a little bit about what you're passionate about or what is keeping you busy. I know a little bit just from conversations we've had, but um, what is something that you're interested in lately? Well, you know, I like to read and I like to sew. I started quilting and little sewing projects, oh, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so. And I love the art about that, the creation of a piece of work. And I like to garden, and it's gardening time. I'm super <laughs> excited about that. Started planting already. What are you growing? We've got lettuce and radish and spinach and potatoes coming up. And last night we planted two kinds of onions, more potatoes, green beans, and more lettuce. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah. I actually did a little podcast a couple, I published it a week or two ago about how everyone, it seems like in our, my job here and then this area that I've been living in um, has a garden and, and like, you know, in the summertime, people really get into it and they bring their produce to work and stuff. I know I've eaten your produce before, <laughs> so it's kind of a, it feels like a cultural thing. Yeah, maybe it is. I've, this is where I have grown up, so it's natural to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, and I love the springtime and the gardening and stuff like that. I get very excited about it in the spring. Come midsummer when I'm picking all the vegetables, <laughs> I get a little worn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the, do you can your vegetables and do all that kind of a stuff? I, you know, I have sometimes, but generally I just, you know, maybe freeze a little bit of stuff or, or I might make jam or jelly or, um, you know, like pear butter or something. Cause we have some fruit trees and yeah. great vines and blackberry bushes and that sort of thing too. <laughs> <laughs> it can get really out of control. Yeah. That's fun. And you live on a fair amount of land, I guess. A few acres. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's good. <laughs> that's really fun. And then you do a lot of baking too. It seems like a lot of cooking and baking. Are you into that as much? You've made a lot of cakes I, for us. Yeah. I, I do like to cook and I like to cook for my kids. Um, since it's just the two of us now, we don't you know, we don't eat as much as we used to, although it feels like we eat more, but I'm, that maybe it's not the baking kind of stuff. But yeah, I do like to cook. We just had a big Easter and, um, you know, all the holidays and sometimes the kids come on Sunday. Yeah. I don't cook as much as I used to. I okay. think because I, I like to be outside and, and now that I've started sewing, you know, but I certainly feel at home in the kitchen. What, what sewing projects are you working on? Oh, I've got so many going. I've got, I think I've got four quilts going right now that are in some stage. And actually, they're all getting to kind of an end stage um, where I need to actually 
put the pieces together and do the quilting and do the binding. And um, I, ha I just haven't found time to actually do that. And since I'm kind of new at it, that's kind of new to me. And so it always takes me a little while to start something, you know, like the new process because I'm a little scared. But once I get started, I think it'll it'll be fine. Yeah. I just need to, and I need to take the time to do it. Right. Since the weather started changing, it's been a little bit harder to stay in the house. Yeah. Definitely more appealing in the wintertime when it's really cold outside. It is. Sure. And then in the summer when it gets really hot, oh, then it'll be okay. Too. But right now, you know, the spring and the fall, it's a little bit harder. <laughs> it's the best time of year in our in the middle of America to be outside is spring and fall. I think so. Um, when it's not too hot, the, the nights are kind of still cool and everything, but mm -hmm. that's good. I agree. So tell me more about your reading style. What kind of books do you like to read and when do you find the chance to read? So I, I kind of like war history, um, fictional war history, but so it's entertaining, but at the same time, I feel like I'm picking up little tidbits of, you know, history that I wouldn't have known. And kind of, maybe a lot of it's kind of cultural, you know, you get to know what was, what's going on or what was going on at that, in, during that time frame with a group of people. Um, I really like it when it's a female heroine, you know, in the book, mm -hmm. you know, if it's, and so I've read some really good ones. Um, I read uh, like a post-apocalypse movie or not movie book recently, which I really enjoyed. I, I wasn't sure if I would or not, but I did. I really enjoyed it. Do you remember the name of that one? Uh-huh. It was called Fever. Okay, right. I think you mentioned that to me. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was like a dystopian one where it was, you said, post-apocalyptic kind of imagining the future. Uh-huh. And it was set in Africa. Which I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed um, them talking about, you know, the different places in Africa and the climate and and how the climate had changed. And I don't know, it was, it was pretty entertaining. That's cool. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. I'll have to link to that in our show notes, too, because it's on my, since you mentioned it to me a, a week or so ago, I put it on my, on my to-read mm -hmm. list, but I'll put it on the show notes for our listeners, too. There's been two or three books that I've read lately, and I made a couple notes about them. The Lost Girls of Paris was really good, and um, The Orphan's Tale, those were really good. Yeah, those are really good. All right, so I'm going to, uh, you ready to talk about the book? Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. I'm excited, a little bit nervous, but I'm excited too. <laughs> In Salt Houses, we follow the Yakub family for five generations after being displaced from their original home in Palestine. Throughout the years, the family is separated as they move to different parts of the Middle East, Europe, and North America, and are impacted by war, conflict, and politics out of their control. Each chapter of the book is told from the viewpoint of one family member. This is a story about family, home, and hope. Um, the book was kind of um, different for me. The style of 
of the way the book flowed was a little different for me. And then it was a challenge. I was challenging myself knowing that we would do this podcast because I don't know that much about the Middle East, but I've always been super curious. And so I thought this is a way for me to kind of, you know, kind of stick my toe in and try to learn a little bit and get more information, you know, just like a starting place for me to learn about the Middle East and and the Palestinian um, state and you know, the Muslim religion and, and, you know, how all of that has affected people there, you know, and the culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so, there's so much to it. Right. And I think that's kind of one of the things I really like about reading. And I think it sounds like you do too. It's a way for me to learn about something I don't know anything about. And I get to experience it through the eyes of that, of a person, you know, who's maybe not real, but you know, has a real type of feelings kind of as a, as a, um, a type of someone who would live there. And so you kind of get to see it through their eyes. So I really like reading fiction specifically for that. Cause you kind of feel like you're, you're immersed in that. Um, and this was also a, a brand new topic for me. I've read a lot about different things, but I had not really, um, read anything about this time period or place in the world. So, um, you know, it kind of gave a very, you know, one view of things, like it was from one perspective, but I think that was really good just to really dive into that perspective. I don't think we hear it a lot. Um, what do you, what did you like about the book? Um, I, I enjoyed the generational changes, you know, um, getting to know the different family members and how they affected each other. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I wasn't sure, honestly, when I first started, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it. But then I got really interested in the family. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to know, you know, what was going to happen to the different family members. So, so it caught my attention. And then I didn't have any trouble staying with it at all. Yeah, no, I think... Um Yeah, at first it was kind of, the way it started out was a little, like the first chapter was just a little slow maybe or something. It was kind of hard to understand. I felt like you and I had both talked actually right after we started it because you were like, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish this because you had to listen to the the first chapter again. And I said, well, I read the first chapter again because I had the same kind of, it was hard to get in touch with. But I really, um, I think the brother, uh, Mustafa, I think is his name. Um, his story right there at the beginning really, I think cemented my interest in the book because you were just so fascinated by his life and, and how he, what he was thinking about, um, knowing kind of by reading the jacket of the book that he was going to become involved in, um, a conflict. And so, um, kind of interesting. And then when Selma right at the beginning is reading the tea leaves for her daughter, which, you know, they say they don't recommend. Right. Especially to that for close. your own personal family mm-hmm. member. Right. And she, you know, has to tell the truth, but she does tell the truth, but she doesn't tell the whole picture because she doesn't want to worry her daughter. Mm-hmm. But, but it kind of piques your curiosity about what's going to happen yeah. to her daughter. And how that's all going to turn out for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it kind of drew you in. I think 
I was thinking about it, you know, like what would you have done in that situation? Would you have, um, told your family member their fortune if you knew it, or would you rather have them kind of have that hope and not tell them all the, the bad things that might have come forward? I would have done the. I feel I would have done the exact thing that Selma did. Yeah. Because I think sometimes when you introduce something, a worry or a concern, um, you know, it can be prophetic mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, we do what we think. And so I wouldn't want to have ever worried about, did I set them up for that? So I think I would have done exactly what she did, especially since her daughter was in love um, mm-hmm. and wanted to marry. You know, she was excited about it. So, although even if she hadn't been, even if it had been, it was arranged, but even if it had been arranged and she hadn't been in love, I, I wouldn't have. Yeah, I, I totally understand why she did what she did. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. You don't want to feel like you had any influence on the on the things that came after. That What if your words had set off some sort of reaction, potentially? <clears throat> um, so what do you think of the name Salt Houses for a title? I think I was looking for why that was the name kind of all the way through the book, and I wasn't really finding it. What did you think? So... I wondered the same thing, and I'm like you. There was not anything, in my opinion, that really was like, this is the reason. Um, But when I think about it, it just, it has, it has to be, I think, because everything's so temporary Mm -hmm. for them. And, And then I thought about the sea, you know, because their life is around you know where they live is around the sea and it would seem so important to them you know yeah that's a good point i hadn't thought about the connection to the ocean mm-hmm. right because even in kuwait that was the really hot place that you know Aliyah hated living there they, it, it did have an ocean um and, and that they would go to mm-hmm. and then when they visited back in jordan they would always go to the beach the other thing i thought about was you know salt so salt is full of flavor and richness and so I was thinking that the homes you know they're temporary but they're still full you know full flavored Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense yeah so because um they carried it with them everywhere they went Mm -hmm. you know who they were and their history Yeah, I really like that because one of the things that did strike me was just the normalcy of their lives too. Like I think sometimes here in the United States, I think about the Middle East and I just think about um, there's so much, it feels like so much chaos comparatively. And I think, but what was striking was how much normalcy there was, you know, that most of the time it's day in, day out for them. They're making very everyday decisions, the same decisions that we're making here. Um, Yes, they're the the rate of... um, maybe more chaotic events and unrest is a little bit higher, but it wasn't like an everyday, they weren't living in a complete war zone every day in and day out all the time. And so I thought that was interesting that you're saying the flavor of their house, like it's rich, it had a rich life and they, um, they really were making the best of what they could do, which also maybe think about putting salt on something to enhance the flavor too. So it's, they were doing what they could to make, their lives the best that they could be, mm-hmm. um, even given some tough circumstances at times. 
Yeah. Which is amazing if you think about the actual geography. If you look at the map and you think about how they move around from an unsafe place to a safer place in a very small space. I mean, because all of it happens in like the size of Missouri (laughs) (laughs) and they're going from this country to that country to be safe. Right. And such, and we just, I think it's just hard to wrap our mind around, you know, people being that close and then having borders that close Mm -hmm. or at least it is for me and well even you know if you think about israel and palestine and and the gaza strip and all of that how you know like square miles or whatever Mm -hmm. it is like it's it's relatively small if you think about you know how we live right yeah no i think that was really interesting because yeah you do have you know, in, in, in such a small square footage, you have, I guess, I don't know, the Israel and Palestine conflict there. And then just across the border in Jordan is, like, relatively peaceful. And it was, like, you know, it I seems... don't know, driving from St. Louis to Kansas City? Right. I don't even know if it's that far. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and then, again, then just in, in Lebanon, too, that wasn't that far away. Right. It's just... Um, yeah, it just seemed very... It was interesting how you just didn't have to travel very far to be in a safe zone but then all of a sudden you know not very far away you're in a militarized conflict yeah it's kind of incredible there was i like this quote um i think it was suad when she was living in boston she said people's eyes glazed over when she tried to explain that yes she lived in kuwait but no she was not kuwaiti and no she had never been to palestine but yes she was palestinian this kind of circuitous logic had no place over there and she means in the united states in boston Mm -hmm. um so it kind of it reminds me a little bit of the of the book we read a couple months ago pachinko where um it was people who koreans who were living in japan for several generations, but they were always still con- considered outsiders and Koreans, even though their whole world and life had been in Japan, they'd never been to Korea. So it's kind of the same kind of thing here where it's like your homeland is your homeland, but you've never been there. And even maybe your parents haven't been there in 50 years. You know, it's like, it's very interesting, um, that attachment to a home. Um, but then not being truly, not really having that true homeland because it's either not yours anymore or um, you can't go back and visit it because it's been destroyed. I thought about that as well because they identify themselves as Palestinian and most of the families never lived in Palestine. And if you, you know, even a few generations, even in my own family, I don't even know where they you know, where people were born because we don't seem to hang on to that piece of our heritage the same way, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I do think that is interesting. Um, It's something cultural that we don't, maybe we don't hold on to that as well here. And I don't know. I wonder if it's that way because, um, I mean, is it that way because they look different, you know, maybe because of their color of skin or because of their 
wardrobe or something. And so it helps them identify themselves as someone from Palestine or I, I don't know. Although I don't know that that would really be the case either because the farther you go in the generations, you could tell in the book that the girls aren't They're following right. the wardrobes that, you know, that right. their grandparents did and they have gotten way far away from practicing the religion even. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I also wonder too, because in the United States we have such a young history of land, um, and like, you know, Native American populations have been on the land for like thousands and, you know, however many thousands of years. Um, but like most Americans, we derive our, our, and, um, our ancestry from Europe, which has only been the last like 250 years. And even then you still have like, I, I just wonder if we've had so much migration in the United States that we don't have a connection to the land in the same way. That folks who have lived on that land for a long, 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 long time feel connected to that land in a different way. If it's part of, if it's just more ingrained in their culture. I don't know. You know, it's interesting to me that you brought up um, Native Americans because I thought about it. I've thought about them. There was a part in the book, and I think it was um, Mustafa and Adif, um, maybe were talking, and they they were. It was a joke where they um, referred to themselves as lazy Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? I don't remember it specifically. And because the Israeli army distributed pamphlets talking about how terrible they were mm -hmm. and useless and worthless. And I thought about, you know, this is your homeland and this is where you have always been. Mm -hmm. And now there's this quote unquote intruder who's driving you out and calling you a worthless, you know, lazy person. Right. And you have no value. And so, and I, I made a connection with, mm -hmm. you know, our country yeah. and Native Americans and how, you know, that must feel to be considered worthless just because of where you were born and who you were born to. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think, you know, we see a lot of, just thinking about some of the books that I've read recently and Pachinko too, I think there's a lot of parallels here to Pachinko. Um, just with colonialism and the idea of, you know, what are the tactics, what does it take to drive someone out of their land? And I do think some of those tactics are used over and over again um, to make the people, to maybe it's to make the people feel self, you know, to reduce their self-worth or to feel like you're justifying why you deserve to take over their land too. Mm -hmm. um, is you Maybe it's making up these stories and a narrative that, these people don't deserve it for whatever reason. So it's interesting, um, kind of similar patterns seen over and over again. Mm -hmm. They, um, a lot of the depictions of war came from sort of an outside perspective. Like, so during the 1967 war, Aaliyah was in Kuwait City visiting her sister, and 
she's watching the television of this war that's happening where she has just left. So um, you don't actually get, not until much later in the book do you get really any sort of on-the-ground footage of what's going on in the moment, but you get it from her outside perspective. And then the same thing happens when Suad is in Paris. We get Suad's perspective. She's watching the footage of um, the invasion, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, where her family was living in Kuwait City. So it was kind of interesting. And then even in the in the Lebanon, um, when they were in Beirut, during the bombing and the in the um, that was 2006, I believe, um, the. Israeli Hezbollah war. Um, it's told from this perspective of like, what's she, 10 years old, nine years old, Lena or Lina? Is Lena? Lena. Lena, yeah. And so it's all of these pictures of war are coming from someone who's just a little bit further removed. And I thought that was really interesting as a parallel for not feeling like you can, you know, watching your homeland crumble and be um, taken over from the outside and not feeling like you can be there and be present to, to affect change. Did you have any thoughts about that? Well, I actually thought that the family's financial status had a lot to do with that because it made it possible for them to move. That's true. And exist somewhere else because so many people can't and they were able to, um, and, and I think that they kind of, I think, you know, that's what they want to do, right? They, I mean, you, they don't want to leave their homeland, but at the same time, they want to be safe. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a struggle with being detached from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did think about that, but I, I did kind of think about, I did kind of think that it was because of their financial status. Yeah, that is, and a, that continued yeah. through the through the family, right? You know, when it was it Wadad, the, the um, other sister mm-hmm. that left the money. You know, she didn't have children, and she left money for the third generation, mm-hmm. and so they were not that they wouldn't have been okay without it, but they were mm-hmm. much more well off, right? Because of that. Which allowed them to travel and go other places and Yeah, that's a good point. I think right, so this is not only is this told from one perspective, but it's also to- told from a very like a well, more wealthy perspective in terms of it doesn't really talk about because um, there was that family that Mustafa had. Um, he was having relationships with Aya. Mm-hmm. I guess the girlfriend. The girlfriend the girl that he loved. That he loved. He didn't feel like he could marry her because her family was lower class, I guess. Um, but they talked a little bit about her surroundings where they kind of all just lived in one, almost like a hut. It sounded like, or, you know, something a little bit, maybe better than a hut, but, um, definitely reduced circumstances. Everybody's working, everybody's hand to mouth in terms of getting the resources. And, you know, you kind of, we don't hear about what happened to her family in that conflict. You know, I'm guessing probably some pretty horrible things happened to them. And then Alia, actually, there was a there was a housekeeper or someone that she had working for in the house that was from a poor right. family and neighborhood and had not seen her children for yeah. some time, and she talked about the guilt that she had yeah. about that. 
that she didn't have that struggle, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, because some of the some of the the maids and domestic workers were like from Sri Lanka or India, I think it was. And yeah, they had talked about not being able to see their kids for years, you know, but they were, they were sending money back home. Yeah. So there's a lot of different perspectives there. It's really interesting. Although they lost Mustafa. So that was, uh, I mean, they did have loss in their family. Right. They definitely did have loss of, of personal life and limb in terms of mm-hmm. Musafa. And they lost their homes, which I think were homes. important to them, mm-hmm. obviously, of a place. It's a place where you raise your children. It's a place mm-hmm. where you have those memories and um, and then you're you're homeless for a while until you can pick up the pieces, which mm-hmm. is tough. It's hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to. Yeah, it really is. And to have it happen over and over again to you. Mm-hmm. Um would be interesting. And then to just leave your things. Um, was it Lena that was in Paris? It was Suad. Suad was it her mother in Paris. And I don't know that she even realized mm-hmm. what she was losing at the time. Right. Until she had a flashback of her room and something that was in her room. And then she realized that it was gone. Yeah. And she'd never see it again. Any of those items, the Mm -hmm. room, the house. Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing. Um, You know, you think, obviously things are just objects, but at the same time they do have meaning. They have, um, they hold comfort too. And I think having things like that ripped away from you is can be devastating and you may not even realize at the, I think she didn't understand sort of the gravity of the conflict at first. And she was like, I'll come back and get it later. And they're like, Oh no, <laughs> you're never coming back here. Uh huh. Yeah. So the people in the book represent like a wide range of religious expression. And we see that Selma and Riam are very devout. And then Alia and Suad you know, are less so. They um, discuss religion in a couple of different ways because they also talk about Abdullah. Um, they sort of religion being used as a way to invite anger and self-righteousness among young men. They talk about um, how that can be um, a tool to kind of leverage that those experiences. And, and Atif and Mustafa had that same experience. They were these young men who um, were susceptible to um, the anger of, of all the injustices they feel like have been happening to their families and their communities and um, religion was used sort of as a leverage to that. Um, but they all use their different, their religion in a different way. Um, so did you have any thoughts about the difference in people's response to the religion? Um, well, I think that, I think as an outsider and someone who doesn't understand the religion or the culture, I always think that they're all the same. And and this book really helped me um, understand some of the different perspectives. I know that there's probably so many more, but, you know, the young men, a couple of them, Mustafa and, and um, Adif, they kind of had some, you know, it, like response, you know, like um, to it, but but still not as much as 
a lot of people, I think, probably have had, or, or, or you know, they have to have in order to do some of the things that happen in war. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that I really thought a whole lot about it. Um, you know, I, I kind of think it's the same way in other religions and families. You know, everyone has a different way of expressing how they feel. Um, I thought it was interesting that, especially some of the women in the book, were concerned about how the religion was used as a leverage to try to get their sons to participate in war. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I totally can understand that. I can understand why someone might respond mm-hmm. and and do things that are hard to understand as well. Um, I thought some of the sisters that were so different from each other that it was interesting to see how over time they understood each other more and they seemed to be more accepting of each other because underneath they really were this the same Mm -hmm. they just had a different expression about how they feel did you do you did you sense that yeah that at some point they kind of had kind of a reunion, you know, of the heart kind of mm-hmm. thing about who they were. Yeah, no, I think they... And a new appreciation for each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that we didn't see Alia and we dad come to... I don't know that we saw them really come meet their differences very well with that, although I think... That part of that was just because Alia was so upset about being in Kuwait City. Um, but I definitely think that their her kids, their generation with Suad and, and Riam, they they connected a lot more after maybe it was going through um, uh, Beirut together because they experienced that together. But it did seem like they really rallied um, at the end to try to say, "Hey, we're not that different," and mm-hmm. you know, we just. We, we have the same feelings, but we're expressing it differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Um, what do you think about the letters that Adif wrote Mustafa? Did you like how they came back into the story at the end? I did. And I liked that he was writing the letters. Mm-hmm. I thought that was... I don't know. I thought it was really healing for him. I thought it was super interesting that Alia never looked. Yeah. <clears throat> never went into his study where she knew that he spent so much time mm-hmm. and she never looked. She never had that curiosity about it. Or she didn't want to know. Yeah, maybe she already maybe she had an inkling of what he was doing and just didn't and wanted to put that aside, huh? Because, you know, it wouldn't according to what Adaf was saying was you know, saying, um, it could have destroyed her Mm -hmm. if she had known Mm -hmm. what had happened, you know, how it had had really played out with Mustafa. Yeah. 
Um, so I thought it was interesting that she never, and I, when it, when the, when they come back into play, um, it's kind of draws the grandchildren back into the story mm-hmm. because they, they can't even, they can barely even read the letters. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's all in Arabic. Uh huh. Yeah. And so you know, they have to do some educating of themselves in order to even read them. Mm-hmm. You know, they can read them a, a bit, but I don't think they can get the full right meaning of it because they weren't even sure, you know, if they were <laughs> letters or if it was, you know. Right. They didn't have I mean, grasp of the language to uh-huh. even know what it was, right. what it was, the format was. Um, I thought it was really, I thought it was really good. I, I liked that part of the story. I liked Adif for doing that I thought that was mm-hmm. my heart hurt for him for the pain that he felt yeah. over that yeah because he carried that with him his whole life he never told anybody and um, when he realized that the grandchildren probably had the letters um, it was it was he wasn't upset about it mm-hmm. it was like a gift and he realized that mm-hmm. and even if they could figure out how to read them and come to the truth he still was okay with that. Yeah. That's cool. And it's a way, I like the idea that it was a way for them to, for Mustafa not to have died from the memories of, you know, because I think sometimes the way we live on forever is through the memory of our, uh, of other people. And so it's way, a way for Mustafa to live on. Um, and also for that family history to be passed down. And as you said, it gave them an excuse to become more interested in learning Arabic because, uh, at that point in time, most of the grandkids were living in um, the United States and speaking English, and so they weren't using <clears throat> Arabic all the time. And so it did become almost like a project that could draw the grandkids together. And it did help them get to know their their uncle because it seemed like the family didn't talk about it much because of the pain. Right. And so they just weren't familiar with who he was. Yeah. No, I thought it was a really interesting kind yeah, of fun. Yeah, I liked that. That's cool. And then what about um, Manar's journey back to Palestine? Um, So she has just found out that essentially that she's pregnant and she goes back because she wants to have this one last pilgrimage back to her homeland. Um, But, you know, at the end, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. It it kind of concluded that she wasn't able to find what she was looking for. It was kind of an, um, sort of a bittersweet thing for her. She didn't, she felt like she was trying to scratch an edge and she never really got to fully scratch it. What do you think she was looking for and trying to find? Well, I th- that's a little bit hard, but I understand why she didn't find it. Um, you know, I think it, like if any of, like I think about the times that maybe I've tried to go back to a place where my great-grandparents lived mm-hmm. or, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. And you have this mind's eye of what is there. And then when you get there, it's not the same. It's cold mm-hmm. and empty. Mm-hmm. And so what, and, and I think that's a reminder to us that, life is really about people and less about things and places because she had never even been there but for some reason she felt like that was home and so she was trying to 
connect, Mm -hmm. but had trouble with that because there's no one there, Mm -hmm. you know, and everything she knew about it was, was what she had heard or learned or read about or had been passed down with stories through the family. Mm -hmm. So I think she, I thought it was, I felt bad that she didn't realize for herself why she felt the way she did. You know, there was some hinting about, I thought it was hinting about like the sheer number of people within the space that, you know, within that area. Mm -hmm. Because she, she mentioned several times about how she thought that she might be making connection, but then she'd be interrupted, you know, by the honk of a horn or Mm. maybe her cell phone or, you know, some kind of interruption. Um, And I think that that can be true. You know, if there's a lot of people around and you can't have, you know, meditate about it or think about it at all. Mm -hmm. But I think that she ended up, it was in kind of, I think it was a good journey for her to find out she had to do it because there was this itch that she had to try to scratch, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that she realized that that wasn't what it was about, that there was really nothing Mm -hmm. there for her. Yeah. No, that's interesting, too. And I think, right, I think she had kind of romanticized it in her mind um, as this place where she'd feel this deep connection to, um... But you're right. I think that's a good point. It is the people, right? And so she had left everyone behind and, and insisted on doing this by herself. Um, but really what she was looking for was this sense of home, which she wouldn't find there anymore because um, because the people weren't there anymore. And I think she connected with her baby while she was there. Mm-hmm. Because, and I think, if I remember correctly, when she found the home, wasn't she thinking about the children that were born? Mm-hmm. And then she realized that, you know, I'm going to have a child and I'm going to name this child and raise this child. Mm-hmm. So I felt that was good because you, I felt in the beginning when she found out she was pregnant, she, I wasn't sure if she would even have the baby. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like she connected with her baby there. Hmm. That's really cool. And with her fiancé. Mm-hmm. Because of the lifestyle she had lived in the United States, almost on purpose, so that she could set herself apart mm-hmm. from, you know, how she was raised and the kind of family that she was raised in. Um, I don't, she she kind of made it sound like maybe she was a little bit promiscuous in the United States. Yeah. And she had the opportunity to do the same thing there mm-hmm. on her trip, but she didn't take it because... She was connecting with her fiance, I think. Yeah, finally. that is a good point, right? So she, it's, it's an opportunity for her to actively choose to her family that she's creating, right? So mm-hmm. her fiance and her baby, um, she's choosing that over the life that she had once lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there anything else about this book that you wanted to talk about? Well, one of the things that you had mentioned to me was who's your favorite character in the book? Yeah, and. That was so hard for me <laughs> because I liked several of them for a lot of different things and my heart went out to them. Um, 
Alia and her temper. Mm-hmm. And then how that spilled over into her daughter, Swad. And I felt for them. And I wondered where that all stemmed from. Um, because Selma didn't seem to be that way. Right. Of course, we don't have a lot of time with her. But um, my heart went out to them for that. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, um, you know, although it's a fictional story, I like the fact that it didn't ruin their lives. Right. Yeah. And Adif might have been my favorite character because of his love for Alia, even though she was temperamental and yeah. could be difficult. And he loved her anyway. Mm-hmm. And he loved her to the end, you know, yeah. even through all of the health issues and, mm-hmm. you know, serious things where she doesn't even know sometimes who they are. And he, his love was constant for her. And I appreciated that about him and mm-hmm. his gentleness. I really liked... Um, the garden um, visits that he was having with his, was it his oldest daughter or middle daughter? Yeah, his oldest daughter, Riam. Um, I really enjoyed the thought mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. of him having that peaceful time with her, you know, and that relationship that they mm-hmm. were, although they had always had a close relationship. Mm-hmm. But I, I liked that. Mm-hmm. I liked the calm that he brought to everyone. You know, all of the grandchildren, when they referred to him, you know, they all had really, you know, he was a calming presence in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The you steady. Could, you could really tell that he loved his family and that he was, he had, took a different approach than Alia did, but he was, um, yeah, it was kind of really sweet. He had a really, he mm-hmm. loved his kids. He loved his grandkids and he really, um, he was a good a good father and a good grandfather too. And then I wonder, you know, his ability to just love them all, no matter what, mm-hmm. and not be angry. Maybe that, you know, maybe he had learned how to forgive mm-hmm. because of what had happened between, you know, with mm-hmm. his brother-in-law, his friend. Right. <clears throat> so that might have helped him in his journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed like he he got to, through his therapy and all the things that he did, he really processed the experiences a little bit more, while, while it seems like Aaliyah maybe internalized it more, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that contributed to her anger more and her temperamentalness of, of feeling sort of frustrated and powerless over the situation. And I can't remember how old she was when they moved, when, she, when they mm-hmm. made the first move to Nablus. When she was a girl, she was when she was yeah that was she, she was pretty young, young like a toddler or something like or just a little and so I I was thinking that and so it makes me wonder you know did that affect her all the moving sure. oh sure because she was so upset about having to stay um, stay in Kuwait yeah and maybe that affected her she was just kind of distraught about it maybe yeah yeah because she was pretty. No, I thought it was a great book. I enjoyed reading it, and I enjoyed 
you know, there were a few times I got up and went to the map and said, okay, now where's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. just so I could get a mental picture. And that yeah. was good for me. That is good. Yeah, so I enjoyed it very much. Me too. I learned a lot while we were, while I was reading it. So, so now it's time to share our recommendations for our listeners. We do this every, so I'll start with you, Lori. What is bringing you joy or making you happy lately? Well, for me, it's always my family. (laughs) So, um, you know, I just, I have grandchildren and, and lots and lots of great families. So that, that's got to be it for me. I like that. That's very good. I'm going to do a little less um, sentimental recommendation. Um, I'm just going to share about something that is, that makes my life better in a very small and insignificant way. And it's my reusable shopping bag from Ikea. (laughs) Oh, that's super cool. And it's not the, I'm not talking about the big blue bags that you normally see, like the giant Uh ones. I've had those. They're great. Yeah, they are great. I have one in the back of my car at all times just for, you know, it's very, comes in handy, but I'm talking about, um, these are small and they're foldable and they can fit inside my purse. And so what I love about this is that, I'm trying to reduce my plastic use where I can and I can fold these up and when I'm one of the frustrating frustrating things about using reusable sh- shopping bags is that when you're you bring all the groceries in then you have these bags all over the place and like they really belong back in the car but I don't want to go back to the car to put them in there and then like they hang around and it's really annoying and I it just drives me crazy and they like get ratty really quickly and ugh. and I wad them up <laughs> For some reason, like I have a bag yeah. in the trunk full of bags that I've just stuffed down in there. And then I'm always so sorry that I didn't take the time to fold it up. Yeah. So the ones I like, they're kind of like a nylon, I don't know if they're a nylon material, but so they're meant to be a stuff sack. So they they fold up and they can be kind of thin. And so when I'm done putting away all my groceries, I will just fold it back up and it kind of folds up into itself and it fits in a drawer in my kitchen. And so I have like three of them in my drawer in my kitchen. And so the next time I go grocery shopping, like a big trip, I will just put those in my purse. They fit in my purse. I always have one in my purse all the time just for like errands that I might run. Um, like if I, if I go home on the way home from work, I want to get some dinner ingredients stuff. I always have one in my purse, but I keep the rest in this drawer. Um, so that when I do my big shopping run every week, I just get those. And then when I'm done putting away, they all go back into the drawer and they like, they don't, it's easy to use. So that's my recommendation. Yeah. I'll have to try one. I like Ikea so much. I haven't been there for a while, but yeah, I certainly have to get one. <laughs> yeah. I, I unfortunately lived like 10 minutes away from Ikea <laughs> for um, a few years. So, um, I went there a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would have too, if I lived that close, Yeah, but that's what I'm recommending. So, um, thank you, Lori, for coming on our podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Infinitely Prefer a Book. Share the love by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Tag me on Instagram at 